Right, we're, gonna, we're looking at Hebrews 9, so please get your Bibles out if you've got one, whether it's on a phone or whether you've got a, a physical Bible in front of you. We're going to read the whole way through. I'm hoping on the screen the words are going to come up. That's okay, Alex. Um, we're, get, we're actually going to start Hebrews 8, verse 13. I want to read just the last verse of Hebrews 8, and then um, all, all the way through 9. There we go, thanks. Okay, so Hebrews 8 and verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance." since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay. Uh, Now, there are a number of responses, I suppose, to what we've just read. Uh, First, you might be like, wow, I'm starting to see some things here, some connections that I that I've seen in the Bible, and that's really exciting, and I want to kind of go deeper. For others, it might just come across like a bit of a jumble of words. And I think that's partly because it's hard to take Hebrews in. It's so dense. You've probably found this as we've read through it. It's so dense, it can be hard or we can be overwhelmed with the the words that's there. And then on top of that, we've got these strange, ancient, archaic practices going on in this text, haven't we? We've got blood, bulls, goats, heifers, sacrifices. Um, There's a lampstand a staff that budded, holy places. It's just so, it's so ritualistic, ancient. It's a world away from us and our church culture and indeed our wider culture that we live in. So there's this big distance, isn't there, between what we're reading in this text and our own world. So what are we going to do about that? Right? What are we going to do about it? We could just give up. We could sort of say, well, we'll sort of endure Hebrews, get to the end and then... Thank goodness we're on to something a bit more familiar. Or we accept that this is God's word and that in his sovereignty he's given it to us for our good, for building us up, for encouraging us, and for edifying us. And I'm telling you, if we see what's going on here, this is some of the most encouraging stuff you can read in Scripture. It's amazing. So try and stick with me as we work our way through um, this text. Now, before we dive in and look at it in detail... I want to emphasize something that I think is kind of clear. It's been clear kind of through Hebrews, I think, in general, but it becomes very obvious in chapter 9. And that's the value of the Old Testament revelation. Okay? Because the writer in in chapter 8 has been emphasizing the new covenant. We've been talking about the new covenant. We had that last week, the new covenant, and how that superseded and it's replaced the old covenant. Okay? Now, a reminder about what a covenant is. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. Um, The first covenant that's mentioned in 9 uh, verse 1 is the covenant God makes with the Israelites after he rescues them from Egypt. He promises to be their God, to bless them, to protect them, to provide for them. He'll give them rest and peace and security and an inheritance. And then there are conditions placed on those who are in that covenant to stay in that covenant. And that's the law. We most probably think of that as the Ten Commandments. Um, there are actually over 600 laws in the law of Moses. And that's the covenant he makes with Moses at Sinai, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about the first covenant. The second covenant is then the one that Jesus brings in, okay, through his death on the cross. Now, in previous weeks, as I said, we've learned that this new covenant has replaced and superseded and overtaken the old covenant. It's based on better promises with a better high priest who comes after the order of Melchizedek, as Yost was talking about last week. Now, for the readers of the letter, we think, we think, their temptation might have been to want to go back to that old covenant. 
The problem for us, I think, is that we're kind of in an opposite situation, which is that we don't know the Old Testament that well. That's partly because it's a world away from us. And so what we tend to do is kind of dismiss it a bit or maybe see it as an optional extra. The Old Testament is an optional extra. We think we've got Jesus, we've got the New Testament. We don't really need the Old Testament. Or maybe we'd say, no, I believe the Old Testament is God's word, but it's just hard, it's strange, it's difficult, and so we kind of give up a bit with it. And so our lack of knowledge of the Old Testament can be evidence, can't it, that we, we're not taking our Old Testaments that seriously. Now, what's clear from Hebrews 9 is that, yes, there's a new covenant that replaces the Old Covenant, but the Old Covenant is clearly of enormous value. And the reason for that is, look at the structure. 9, 1 to 10, he's reminding the, the listeners about the Old Covenant realities, the sacrifices, the tent, all the things in the tent. And only then, in 11 and onwards, does he explain how Christ has come and taken those things and taken them further. If we don't understand 1 to 10, we can't really understand what's going on at all in the rest of the text. So when we enter the world of the Old Testament, what's really going on is there's plenty more in common between the two covenants, actually, than there are differences. I've got two analogies that might help us think about it a little bit. The first is to think about engagement and marriage. Both are a kind of covenant of sort. Marriage is better than engagement, right? You can, it's based on better promises and realities. There are things you can do in marriage you can't do in engagement. Enough said. Um, and you can make, you know, it's a legally binding agreement you make, don't you? you say, till death us do part. That's not a promise you make in engagement. But that doesn't then mean that your engagement was meaningless or pointless or valueless. It was the beginning of a journey in which your relationship grew and flourished. And in the same way, the Old Testament is the first part in God's story with his people, bringing his people back to him to worship him and serve him in holiness. So the aim of the Old and New Covenants is basically the same. Relationship with God, service to God, without sin, in holiness. But the New Testament is a better revelation. It's got better promises and a better hope. Or another way to think of it is imagine I've got a friend who comes to me. He's never been to London. He says, I'm going around London. Can you tell me what I should see? And I say to him, well, the best thing is just get on the train at Watford Junction and get off where you fancy. You know, explore it for yourself, see what you can find. And he comes back and he says, you know, London's not that great, to be honest. I saw a petrol station. I saw some flats and some houses and a park. You know, what's all the fuss about? But if I gave my friend a map, a copy of the city, and I said, go explore it using this map, and they come back, and I saw, you know, I got off at Westminster, and I saw Big Ben, and I saw the Houses of Parliament, and I saw Buckingham Palace and, you know, Trafalgar Square and so on, you know, who gets the better experience? Now, the Old Testament is a bit like a map for the New Testament. We see that actually in Hebrews 9.24. I'll read that. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. Okay. Now, we'll talk more about what this copy is in a minute. But the Old Testament had things that were copies of truer realities. It was like pointing towards something that was yet to come. And so a map, in the same way, is a copy of the city. Of course, it's not the same thing to explore the map as explore the city. That's obvious. But the map sure helps with the experience of the city. So we can learn lots about Jesus and who he is by just having our New Testaments. Lots of people become Christians that way. They read a gospel. I know people in this congregation for that 
how that happened. They read the gospel, they believed, they had faith, they became Christians that way. So we can learn things about Jesus. I'm not saying we can't know anything about Jesus without knowing our Old Testament, obviously not. But if we want to go deeper in our relationship with him, and we want to know more about who he is and what he's done, we need to read our Old Testaments. Okay, because it points towards who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he will do. So that's the first challenge, just before we even dive in, for us. Will we take up that challenge to read and try and understand our Old Testaments a little bit better? Okay, let's, let's dive into the text now. Um, so, 1 to 10, first of all. Now, um, verse 1, it says, now even the first covenant, that's that first covenant I was talking about with Moses, and it says, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now these two things, worship and holiness, are the very foundation stone of our relationship with God. Worship is about our service, our glory in God, our surrender to God, and we worship him because he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the one to whom all things are due. And we also meet God in holiness because he is the holy one. He's set apart, pure, awesome in power. And he demands that we meet him as a holy people, ourselves set apart for him, purified, devoted solely to God. So therefore we're to worship the Lord in holiness. So any, a worship that's unholy is not really worship, and holiness that doesn't glorify God and give praise back to God is not really holiness. It's a kind of fake, false kind of holiness. Now in verses 1 to 5, you'll notice that the writer lists lots of things there's a lampstand, table, and so on. Um, and these are things that were in what was called the tabernacle, or the tent, or sometimes called the tent of meeting. Now, that was an earthly place of holiness. It's where the people were to worship God in holiness. That was its purpose. It was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The pattern of it was given to him. And it was where God dwelt among the people, where they were to meet with him and worship him. Now, hopefully a picture is going to come up on the screen. I don't know if it is. It appeared a picture of the tabernacle. It's just at the end of the PowerPoint. So you can get that up. Um, there's a picture here. You can see this is maybe what it would have looked like. This comes from the ESV Study Bible. And they said you are allowed to use this in church services. So I've checked. Um, so uh, that's just a picture of what it may have looked like. It's not that big, you'll see, actually. It's about nine meters long, and there's two sections. If you just click on Alex, there's a first arrow that shows you the holy place. That's the holy place, that first section there. Um, and that's where he points out the lampstand and the bread of the presence. That's in verse 2. And then in verses 3 to 5, he points out the most holy place, which is the bit behind, and that arrow should come up with the next click. There we go. Um, and he points out the Ark of the Covenant, the jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and so on. The tablets of stone, that's the stone that the Ten Commandments were written on that would sit in the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim whose wings would cover the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, as much as these items are all fascinating, and you can read commentaries and they'll go into all sorts of what's the significance of this thing and that thing, um, we want to be faithful to the text. And in verse 5, it says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He's not actually focusing on those things. What he's focusing on, okay, is actually the place that those things are in the holy place and the most holy place. And that leads on to a discussion of the priests, which is in verses 6 to 7. It's the role of the priests within this tabernacle that the author is wanting to really focus on here. How do they minister and what do they do in this holy place and most holy place? So the holy place then. This is the place 
that many priests could minister in. And what they would do is they would offer daily sacrifices. They would attend to the lamp, make sure it's always got oil, so it's always burning. They helped others who would be coming to the temple maybe to be cleansed or to make their own sacrifices, their own offerings, their own dedications, maybe people coming to regular festivals that were spread throughout the year, and so on. That's in verse 6, which says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. The most holy place, this is the place with a big no entry sign on it. Now, I remember when I was um, learning to drive, my driving instructor was preparing me for the test. Um, I actually failed, but um, anyway. Uh, this thing that he taught me, I did remember. And what he'd say is, you'll be driving along, and your instructor, the, uh, the examiner, I suppose, would say to you, take the next available right turn. And of course, the trick is that the next right turn has a no-entry sign on it. And so you could make the perfect maneuver. You could brake perfectly, be checking your mirrors, indicate correctly and everything, make the turn, and pff, you've blown it. You'll fail the test because you've broken the highway code. You've gone the wrong way up a road you're not allowed to go up. And so for those who entered the most holy place, and by the way, that was only the high priest that could do that. One person could do that only. Um, if they went in at any time, bar one instance, they wouldn't just fail a test. They'd drop dead if they walked in there. And so Leviticus 16.2, Leviticus is part of Moses' law that was given at Sinai. Leviticus 16.2 should come up on the screen, I hope. Um, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother, Aaron is the high priest, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. That inside the veil is inside the most holy place. Before the mercy seat that's on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. You see, this most holy place is where the very presence of God dwelt with his people. And this living God is holy and awesome and pure, as we've learned. He cannot exist in the presence of sin, of any wickedness or any sort of rebellion, any sort of selfishness. He'll just consume it in wrath and anger. And that's not a kind of petty anger that kind of flies off the handle kind of anger. It is a settled, determined hatred of that which is wrong that which is evil, that which is sin. And their problem, and our problem, is that we have hearts, don't we, that are predisposed to evils of various kinds, to fits of anger, to lust, to selfishness, and so on. That's the reality of what it is to be human. And so God is with his people, but access is denied into his presence. You see that in verse 2 of Leviticus 16? It's the presence of God at the end of the verse. That's the reason the high priest can't enter. It says, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. It's God's presence that's actually the problem. That is, of course, except on the Day of Atonement. So verse 7 of Hebrews 9. But into the second, that's the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. God made provision once a year, on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest could go into the most holy place so that the people's sins could be forgiven. But he must do exactly what God says. He has to wash himself. He has to make a sacrifice, enter the holy place, sprinkle it with his own blood, then come out, make another sacrifice, this time for the sins of the people, go back into the holy place and sprinkle it. And Leviticus 16.16 16 then tells us why blood must be sprinkled. 
Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. So again, it's this uncleanness, it's this sin, it's this transgression that demands blood has to be spilt, sprinkled so that the holy place can dwell among them. Okay, so what do we learn from that? I think we learn three things uh, from this about how God is uh, relating to his people in the Old Testament. Firstly, relationship. Secondly, the problem is sin. And thirdly, grace, but on God's terms. Grace, but on God's terms. So relationship, God's seeking relationship with his people. We think the Old Testament sometimes is law and the New Testament is grace. Or we say the New Old Testament's wrath and the New Testament's mercy. And that's, I think, just wrong. I just think if you think that, you're wrong. Because God gives the Ten Commandments, but he also gives strict instructions about this tabernacle. And this is God wanting to dwell with his people. He wanted relationship through the Old Testament too. He wants to be present with his people and in relationship with them. Okay? Now, secondly, was the problem, which is sin. In the Old Covenant, sin is the big obstacle preventing close relationship with and acceptable worship to God. And it's sin that prevents us being able to access the presence of God and experience close relationship with him. But thirdly, grace on his terms, because God determines how we can approach him. We can't just come to God any way we choose, because he's awesome and holy, and we're not. We're weak and we're sinful. So we have to be careful that we approach God in the way that he has said we can. And what does he do? He offers a means by which through sacrifice and through this high priest, his people can receive forgiveness for failure to keep his commandments. And that's grace. It's grace because it's, you make the sacrifice, it's a free gift. The life of the, of the sacrificed animal um, provides a kind of forgiveness. But we have to approach God on his terms. Okay, so verses uh, 1 to 7, we've seen... Um, the tabernacle, the things inside it, the holy place, the most holy place, and the priests, and how they function in relation to that. In verses 8 to 10, very quickly, he shows how the old covenant is deficient. It's not able to fulfill uh, what it needs to. And the tabernacle system is actually showing us that through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verses 8 says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the lack of access into the most holy place, that it could only happen once a day, oh, sorry, once a day, once a year, and the fact that it had to be done in a very specific way, and probably in a slightly trembling way, the high priest would be quite scared as he did that, was indicating that there wasn't really access. And secondly, the gifts and sacrifices are only really able to cleanse the outside of the person, to cleanse them from skin conditions or having touched a dead body and so on. I mean, how can the death of an animal really absolve our consciences of the fact that we've done things that are wrong? Is that really enough to appease God? In other words, the old covenant purifications are kind of external, and they're pointed to this fact there's an internal washing that's more radical that's needed from our sin. And so verses 11 to 12 is the turning point. Let's read that together. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, and not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We see that the appearance of Jesus has changed everything. His appearance as the high priest of a new covenant has achieved two things that I'm going to look at in the last part of in the sort of last 10 minutes here. First, he's entered the more perfect tent. And secondly, he's secured an eternal redemption by his blood. And we're going to take them in reverse order because that's the order that the writer takes them in. So first of all, verses 13 to 14 talk about the eternal redemption by his blood. So we'll read that together. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We have an argument, don't we, from the lesser to the greater. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, they're all acceptable sacrifices given in the law of Moses, they only clean the outside. But how much more can the blood of Christ? I mean, just think how precious is Jesus, the Son of God, to the Father? How valuable is his blood that he shed for us? I mean, is there any blood in all of creation that could be shed, that could be of more value than the blood of the incarnate Son of God? And if animals can clean the outside, then the blood of God and the blood of Christ can clean us up on the inside. So if you're feeling guilty about anything today, take it to Christ. He can cleanse you of that guilt by washing you in his blood. When people become Christians, they often talk about a weight being lifted off their shoulders. I think that's that sense of guilt that people carry, just lifting off. As we're washed in the blood of Christ, we're cleansed of our sins. So whatever wrong maybe now you're feeling guilty of, I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks and brings those things to mind. And I pray that people in this room run to Christ for their guilty consciences to be washed clean. Verse 14 says that Jesus' blood has been shed through the eternal spirit. Now, there seems to be a difference of opinion if you read the commentaries on whether this is the eternal spirit of the eternal Son of God or if it's Jesus Christ anointed by the eternal Holy Spirit at every point in his ministry, including his death. I don't think it really makes that much difference. The point is it's an eternal spirit that's working, and so the sacrifice he's made becomes eternal. Do you see that in verse 12? It's an eternal redemption. In verse 15, it's an eternal inheritance. We've been rescued from sin eternally to receive new life eternally because the value of that blood. Our sin has been put away in verse 26 by the sacrifice of himself. But do you see the purpose of that cleansing? It's right at the end of verse 14. It's for service. That's why I was interested that this theme of worship was coming up in, 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 the, in the time of worship when we were singing and service of giving our whole bodies. Do you see that in verse 14? It says, um, uh, it says, uh, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We as Christians, we can be glad that we've received forgiveness from God, that we have peace with God and a clean conscience, but if that's kind of where our faith ends, 
if we're coming to church just to kind of receive, I think we're missing something massive. And I think it's a big problem actually in our consumer culture. It's so ingrained in us to just receive. That's what we're taught, we're trained almost to, to think in that way. You see, the response to the grace we've received that the Holy Son of God walked in total obedience to God. He lays his precious life down, sheds his precious blood to save us. Our response is worship, and worship is service. So if we're not of a mind, I think, to serve God and worship him, I don't think we're responding appropriately to the grace that we've received. So maybe, you know, if you're thinking you know, you're struggling as a Christian, maybe your lack of zeal or your lack of a sense of intimacy with God, lack of a holy life. Maybe that's in part because we're not seeking them uh, for the sake of God and his glory, but maybe we're just seeking them for ourselves. We just want a clean conscience. You know, why do you come to church? Um, Where have you been disappointed with church? I'm guessing, I'm sure no one's ever ever had that. Um, Maybe the places you feel disappointed are the places you could serve in response. And sometimes we serve, it goes wrong, you know, doing children's church, and things can go wrong. Drinks get spilt, people need the loo, they don't seem to get the teaching, but they focus on some small thing that you've done instead. And it can be discouraging. And there are lots of other examples I'm sure you've got of ways that you can serve, whether that's in church or out of church. We can get discouraged, but we can know, can't we, that if we serve the living God who's loved us and sent his son for us, we do, knowing our Our acts of service are imperfect, incomplete in many ways. They're made perfect and holy by the blood of Christ. So the purpose of our cleansing is worship, and worship is service. Right, secondly then, and finally, Jesus' blood has been sprinkled in a better place. So we see that in verses 22 to 24. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You see, the the writer is saying the law demanded that everything has to be purified with blood, blood of goats and bulls in this case, of course, and that there could be no forgiveness of sins without that blood being shed. And so Jesus has offered his own blood as purified, not this tent, which is just a copy but he has walked into heaven itself. Remember, everything is purified in the tabernacle with blood to cover the sins of the people, but he's entered into heaven, into the very presence of God, the true tent, and sprinkled his blood there and made it totally clean. He's walked boldly into the presence of God, not like the high priest, who in the earthly tabernacle, the copy would have done so trembling. He used to carry a censer of smoke that would cover his face, so he didn't even look at the presence of God between the cherubim. So terrified was he of the holy presence of God. Jesus walked into heaven to be face to face with God. You you could translate verse 24, now to appear to the face of God for us. Jesus right now is in the very presence of God, face to face with God, fully accepted. And he's standing there for us, for me and for you. He's standing there for us. That is incredible. He's standing in the presence of God right now on our behalf. And we ha- what have we learned about him through Hebrews? He's able to sympathize with us, tempted as we are yet without sin, interceding for us, not ashamed to call us brothers. 
as the high priest who represents us. He's the forerunner on our behalf into the inner place behind the curtain. He goes into God's presence that we can go with him afterwards. And what a comforting thought that we have access to our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We can pray to the Father knowing, this is what Liz was praying, you know, we can pray to the Father knowing that Jesus stands there on our behalf, ensuring that our prayers are heard. And we know that when we don't pray or when we drift, Jesus remains praying for us, praying that we would persevere to the end. And just think of Jesus' character, his kindness, his mercy, his goodness, that character in the presence of God on our behalf. So it seems, doesn't it, in the letters of the Hebrews in general, they're in danger of just giving up. Because the whole letter seems to be just an encouragement to stop giving up. Don't give up, don't walk away. And so a great source of encouragement, I think, to the Hebrews is to look to Jesus, who's standing in the heavenly places on their behalf. And um, we see that in chapter 9. So how do we find strength to keep going? When we make troubles of various kinds, whether they're small things or big things, life-changing things, we can remember that Jesus is standing in the presence of the Father on our behalf. In your struggle against sin, have you thought that as you wrestle with sin, he is praying for you before the Father? What other place do you have access to? You might think, well, I know this person or that person, or I've got access to this place or that place. Do you have a place that you have access to that can compare to the throne room of heaven where Jesus is praying for you on your behalf? Okay, so to conclude, we'll look at verses 27 and 28, just to finish. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We're reminded, aren't we, that we face death and then judgment. We face death once and then judgment. And Christ also has died once, but not for his sin, but instead as a sacrifice for our sin. And so when he comes back, he doesn't come to judge because he's put away sin, it says in verse 26, but instead just to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again, are we eagerly waiting for Jesus' return? Do we, see, do, we, do we think on the fact that he's in heaven now and one day he's coming back? There's an interesting way to, if we go back and imagine in the Old Covenant that day of atonement and, and the movement of the high priest, he, he, he appears before the people and makes a sacrifice of a bull or a goat. And then he disappears into the tabernacle or the tent to sprinkle the blood in the most holy place, out of sight. And then he comes back out to be with his people again. But Jesus also makes his three appearances. He publicly makes a sacrifice of himself before the people. That's his death on the cross. And the witness is in this, his word in the New Testament. He has appeared in the past and he has made the sacrifice. Now he's out of sight because he's gone into the heavenly places, into the most holy place. We don't see him, but we know he's there on our behalf. And he will come out again, just as the high priest would do, to be with us, his people, and lead us into God's presence to be with him forever. So the certainty of his return to us is as sure as the certainty that he died and that he stands now in the presence of God. And he will bring us washed and cleaned, offering acceptable service to God. 